Welcome to On Culture. On this podcast, we talk about culture and faith and the world and our place in it. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support our work and explore all of our content on our website, theembassy.substack.com. Here's Mike. Okay, and we are back for another episode of On Culture. My name is Mike Sherman. I am joined by Chris Vance, a pastor at New City Church. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. On Culture is the podcast of the Embassy, uh, Substack newsletter, theembassy.substack.com. And uh, we are going to talk about uh, the latest iteration uh, of of uh, the embassy that's sort of um, uses maybe two central illustrations in talking about translation connection um, and how that you know how that informs or, or maybe sheds some light on what our mission is uh, in the church and uh, we're going to start with the first one is this uh, movie Arrival which uh, 2016 it came out. Uh, uh, fall of 2016, I think. Um, so it's been out a little while. If you haven't seen it, it's really good. Um, and uh, you just you just saw it in the last couple of days, right, Chris? So what do you what did you think of it? Yeah, I, I thought it was really good. Um, I I'm a bit caught off guard that I haven't heard more about it like since 2016 or that I'm just now seeing it because I'm not opposed to like the sci-fi genre at all. So, um, yeah, I was a little surprised by that, but now I'm really happy that I've seen it. I, I think it's one of my probably favorite sci-fi movies out there just after one watch through. I mean, I, I found it really entertaining, but also, um, really thought provoking in the way that, you know, a movie like inception is, mm-hmm. um, which I appreciate. Yeah, yeah, it's different. Uh, and, you know, one of the the, uh, the the theme of that movie is really translation, understanding, connection. These these 12 alien ships just suddenly appear on Earth, spread out around the globe. And there's a, you know, a race to un- try to understand who these aliens are. Why are they here? What's going on? Um, and it shows this... Uh, woman uh this linguist uh really you know being the one who makes these this connection uh you know with these aliens who are obviously completely different they're heptapods you know which i find funny they're seven-legged aliens uh which seems random Mm -hmm. uh, probably just trying to illustrate the differences um but you know her her uh her approach is uh you know, one that requires a lot uh, from her. Like, first of all, she has to be brave. You know, she, you know, she takes off, they have these big orange suits on and, you know, she has to, she takes it off. Like I have to, they have to see me and she gets up close to try to begin to communicate uh, and everyone's freaking out, you know? And uh, I do think there's a sense in which, you know, when we approach something or someone some phenomenon that's new, that's different, that's foreign. You know, we tend to suit up if we were, you know, as it were, we trying to, you know, protect ourselves and, and whatever. And that kind of gets in the way of, of actually connecting to people. Uh, Right. I mean, you know, it's understandable, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows what, you know, whatever germs these, you know, whatever aliens have or whatever, 
so it's completely understandable, but it is, if the job is to try to connect, you know, we have to somehow get a little bit less protected, a little more vulnerable, a little more curious uh, to begin. That's the first mm-hmm. step of trying to, trying to understand. And I don't know that things, I mean, 2016, obviously is sort of a magic year where, you know, it's a marker where it feels like things went crazy faster, but things were already sort of going, you know, off the rails in terms of public discourse and people, people's stances towards each other. But that's how I sort of feel when you, you know, see interchange of people online, especially is these people that are sort of separate and sort of protecting themselves against each other while they're attacking uh, each other. I mean, is that what you see? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think curiosity, that's a word you used. I think that's one of the operative words. Like we seem to often lack societally, culturally, a genuine curiosity. It's like, I can't have a curiosity about this person or their thoughts or their philosophies or their creative work without affirming everything they are or everything they stand for. And if this thing feels other, um, that's even going to further dampen my curiosity for what they have to offer the world because it might be a, a threat to me or what I've previously held. Like I know in Arrival, the military general really just wants the linguist to get down to like one question of like, why are they here on earth? Like, what is their intention with earth? And she has to explain, like, we have to have a curiosity about all these other things if we can even have any kind of hope of asking a question with that much import and that much assumption behind it. Um, And so this is oversimplified, but I just wonder if reclaiming our curiosity, a, a, a curiosity that doesn't have to criticize at every corner or every time we feel a little bit insecure, I, I wonder if that's one of the key things we have to just reclaim, not just inside the church, but probably as a society as a whole. Yeah. 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 I think you, you know, one of the things you just said there is we tend to think our curiosity implies some sort of endorsement or being for. Yeah. And the thing we want to make sure everyone knows is we're not for this. Uh, and so, you know, that tends, that's like our suit, you know, that, that tends to cut mm-hmm. off any sort of possibility of uh, a sympathetic listening. Yeah. Because I can listen to you sympathetically and not agree. Uh, I can listen yeah. to you sympathetically and, uh, you know, know pretty early that I'm not, we're not going to agree, but I still, you know, a sympathetic listening just means trying to find the best version of your understanding, your belief, whatever, instead of a caricature that, you know, I want to cut mm-hmm. that off. I want to classify it. And then I just want to move on. And I mean, I do, I do think that almost a sympathetic view is almost seen as a weakness or a potential weakness or a softening of the truth mm-hmm. or something, right? I can, I can listen sympathetically or I can stand for the truth. And that's just a false dichotomy. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it, as a pastor, I'll admit, like, I'm super guilty of this. Like, when I have something I find to be really beautiful and it comes from a controversial source, I'll usually be tempted to start with, hey, I don't buy everything this person's selling, but this thing is really good. And then I have to ask myself the question, like, why do I start with the disclaimer at the beginning? <laughs> or, like, why do I start with the but? It's because I want people to hear the thing I'm offering without the white noise of everything else they know about that person or their work. So it just feels like you have to overcome so much just for them to see this thing that's really true and good and beautiful if this person has something else that may be disagreed with or more controversial. Right. And so hidden in that is some presumption that, um, you know, we, the right people hold the truth and mm -hmm. uh, other people outside of us don't hold any truth. And so it seems like a contradiction to say, I'm going to quote somebody who's outside my group uh, mm -hmm. saying a true thing. When of course, theologically, that's not a contradiction. I mean, it's not a contradiction at all that we don't have the truth. Mm -hmm. God has the truth. God can, you know, give, can and does give truth to everyone. You can't live in this world without, holding on to some mm -hmm. truth and that we can learn and be curious and uh, have, you know, form understanding with people that are outside of our group, but you feel the need to qualify because there is a cultural assumption that, Hey, those people are suspect and yeah. Right. I mean, Hey, Chris doesn't believe everything there. Of course. I mean, I mean, we don't, we don't do that with anyone, really. We don't believe anything, mm -hmm. everything everyone says, anyone says, but I think there's a sense of, oh, maybe Chris really is, maybe he is more liberal than I thought because he quoted yeah. whatever. I mean, it's, it's kind uh -huh. of ridiculous, but it's, it's present for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then you get a little bit in a spin cycle because um, you want them to see so at least I do. I want them to see so badly what's on offer that's so good. And it almost feels like if you don't um, take care of some of those stumbling blocks on the front end, like they won't see it. But then you're almost feeding into the thing that is the stumbling block. So it's quite frustrating sometimes. Right. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. You almost have to take a diversion and talk about the stumbling block uh, as it's a separate topic at some point, because that's right. It's, you know, by doing that, we're reinforcing that, uh, you know, that understanding. But right now it seems like it's in order to, for you to communicate with people you're speaking to, even in the church, there's a translation that you have to make, you know, that you're making in yeah. that sense. Mm -hmm. um, I do and I don't, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, I, I'm not sure where, um, I'm sure there's a lot of points in history we could look back on, but, um, the church has not always had a strong flavor of we have the universal and exclusive rights to all things that are common truth and common grace. Um, like randomly enough in sermon prep last week, I found myself reading a lot of the Belgic Confession, <laughs> which is 1541. And they had a very strong sense of there is a common and an ordinary grace and truth in which non-believers 
can experience and flourish into some degree, but the ceiling, there's always going to be a cap or a ceiling on that until they experience special revelation of Jesus or the, the scriptures. Um, and so throughout history, the church has fought in these ways, but it doesn't seem like most of us are thinking in that way now. Yeah, I mean, I think there are many in the church who don't really want to give permission for others in the church to think that way. Like the first order of business is to make sure you're in the in-group and not in the out-group and that you're, you know, Mm -hmm. by proxy sort of condemning the out-group as a way of showing that I'm in the in-group, I have to say the out-group is bad. And that's sort of a preface to, you know, everything. You know, in, in the movie the assumption was these aliens are here to kill us. You know, they're here to destroy the earth. I mean, that's sort of the underlying Mm -hmm. assumption. And then people, you know, at some point try to take action on that uh, assumption and, uh, and, you know, it turned out not to be the case. Uh, but it, this, you know, unknown foreign, uh, unfamiliar and not like me equals fear equals, stay away equals run away equals caution equals fight. And there's something I think that's, that is within us that, you know, that's a sort of a, a natural response. You know, you, you know, a familiar face in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, draws you unfamiliar face, you know, pushes you away, you know, your people, your family, who are you safe with from a, you know, a child going to some public place, they're going to, be drawn to the, you know, what's safe and, and all the other people feel unsafe and all of that. So all of that's very understand it, understandable, but I think it all, it just gets in the way of actually connecting with people. And of course there are unsafe people in the world, but, uh, uh, you know, if we're going to approach everyone as if they're unsafe and as if we need to potentially fight immediately, boy, it's awful hard to really connect and communicate and understand and to do this thing that we're called to do to translate our faith into terms they can understand. It's like, you got to pick one or the other. Yes. I, I do think eventually you do make choices where you, you are picking one or the other, like an arrival, if they never take off their suits or they're never willing to go in the ship itself. Like I, I don't think eventually they ever, are able to communicate. And in the same way for us, um, you can hold on to your sense of safety, which even that's a bit ironic, right? Cause at the end of the day, it's like you could do everything in your power to hold on to safety. And, you know, if you don't number your, you know, we all have numbered days and we don't know the day or the hour, like there's still a lot of unknown. So even that's a little sure. bit ironic, but, um, yeah, it, you can have a very strong sense of safety um, or you can be a part of changing the world in a way in which you're getting other people to see the upside down kingdom is actually the true kingdom. Like when you look at Paul, when you look at other new Testament characters, I mean, show me the self-preservation, show me the safety, show me the fear, show me the cloister. It's not there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in Acts 19, you know, they're chanting in the in the stadium, you know, all in an uproar. Mm-hmm. And Paul wants to go in there, and his, his, his 
friends are like, you, you, are you kidding me? You're not going in there. They're going to rip you apart. And he wants to yeah. let me in there. Uh, yeah. And so I think there's, and, and I do think, you know, what was, you know, Paul's motivation, in a sense, Paul's audience was, you know, his audience was the Lord. He was, his connection was there and through there to the church you know, we kind of get that backwards, I think, and we want to gain the approval of people in our group. And one mm-hmm. of the surest ways to do that is to reject those outside of the group and the people within our group feel good. And there's kind of that, there's that second illustration in, in the piece is that, you know, 19 Kids and Counting, you know, which if you've sort of uh, followed, you know, the news or there's a documentary series, Shiny Happy People uh, on Amazon, which sort of documents that world to some degree and, you know, the downfall of, you know, that it's just a very strong bubble, a very strong identity. And it's a very strong pull to stay with the bubble, stay in the bubble, identify with the bubble. And in a sense that becomes a virtue that we're different from everyone else, that we're disconnected from everyone else, that we're different from everyone else becomes the virtue that you need to preserve which obviously makes it impossible to translate. You're not even trying to translate, right? You're trying mm-hmm. to be different in order to show your, show your virtue. And I think there's some of yeah. that that can find its way into the church for sure now. Yeah, and, and pun intended, you alienate yourself from the people outside the bubble. Like, I thought it was comical that the father, his name is Jim Bob, right? Jim that Bob, right. Jim Bob went to run for public office. Like he wanted to be like a Senator. And it's like, um, you can't be surprised about how odd or foreign or alien you feel to people, not just with the controversy, but after this bubble way of living where you're not communicating or translating Jesus in the space around you. And then all of a sudden you decide, well, now I want to have this prominent public office you know, how are you then surprised that people are off put or at the bare minimum bewildered by that choice? Well, I do think that's one of the qualities of the bubble is you, it distorts. And so everyone, Mm -hmm. everyone I know thinks I'm great. Everyone I know thinks I'm smart. Everyone I know thinks I'm right. So that everyone probably does. And, you know, the people who don't are obviously wrong and everyone will see that they're obviously wrong. That's just sort of the dynamic of the bubble. And the mm-hmm. more you're in that, the more it's self-reinforcing. Uh, but of course, however big your bubble seems to you, it, you know the, the the world outside your bubble is bigger by by a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know there's a there's a story that goes all the way back to, I think it was the '72 presidential election where some uh, I think columnist for the New York Times I think said, I can't believe Nixon won the election. Nobody I knew voted for him. And he won like 49 out of 50 states, which just like, that's the dynamic that we live in. Nobody I know thinks different than I do. And so that makes me think the people who think like me, you know, hey, there's this silent majority that thinks like me. Well, there probably isn't. (laughs) It's probably not true. And yeah, you go run for office and you find out, yeah, no, people don't think like you, you know, that the people watch the TV show because you're different. You know, you're, the, the bubble status is what they're watching. They don't really want you to be their senator, for crying out loud. 
Yeah. Yeah, the otherness is the attraction in a way of, you know, well, we would never have 19 kids or live in that way, but um, a bit like a zoo. Let's look through the glass and on these people who are living this way at yeah. a bit of a safe distance. But Yeah, and I think yeah. there's... There's an, a, there's an illusion that the bubble is safe and that's sort of, you know, the, the, the suit is safe. Fighting is safe. I know it's known. Uh, of course we find out later, not a lot later that the bubble wasn't safe at all, that there was abuse, uh, in the bubble. There was all sorts of bad stuff happening in the bubble. And, and some of those kids in the, you know, they're, they're now adults, but you know, speaking of the documentary, the bubble feels like a prison because it's not safe inside the bubble. And uh, it's all an illusion, you know, and that the, we do what we do to keep us safe, but it doesn't work. It doesn't even work to keep us safe. It defeats why we're here. It defeats connection. It defeats our mission in the church. And it doesn't even, doesn't even keep us safe. You know, it just can't. That's just not the world that we live in. And, you know, that's the shame of the, you know, the shiny, happy people uh, documentary is they, we saw them as shiny, happy people. That's why we were watching, apparently. And obviously they were not for the most part. Yeah. And I wonder too, you know, in, in Arrival, it talks about how there's um, a rewiring of a brain or a theory that your brain is actually rewired. Like when you're immersed in a new language and it felt like a lot of the shiny, happy people as they deconstructed or deconverted or got outside the bubble, it felt like their brains were being completely rewired and integrated back into what we would call more normal or routine functions of society but I, I wonder the, the rewiring of the brain is kind of an interesting theory to think about because I think we may be nothing short of that, like as the church in the 21st century in the West, like as um, we experience some more marginal positions than we have in the past. And I'm, even, I'm not even someone that says we need to sprint for the margins, like, in, you know, on purpose. But I do think as we just track where culture and society is going and if we fight against the temptation like peter and the zealots had to politically solve all our problems through man-made solutions i do think the immersion in the listening and the curiosity of observing the idols and the pagan things of our day hopefully that will rewire our brains in a way in which we can communicate well with our unbelieving neighbors but it feels like anything less drastic than that um, almost feels like it's not going to be enough because we're rowing against the tide so much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I think that is like, it is learning theory. I think that there, there are like new connections made in your brain when you learn things and that's, you know, there's, so kids learn things faster for all those reasons. Um, and you know, as you get older, you kind of have grooves worn, you know, in a sense. And so you got to, yeah, you got to get out of that, that world. And it does remind me, I put it in the piece that, you know, the first Corinthians uh, nine, I think it is, you know, where Paul says, you know, in order to win these people, I became like them in order to, 
you know, win the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win the, you know, the pagans, I became like them. You see in Acts 17, he's in this realm of the philosophers and he kind of, you know, he, he, he makes an appeal to philosophers using philosophy. Um, it gets to the gospel, of course, but there's this sense of a becoming like, which, which isn't an adaptation to your, to who you're talking to. It is a translation. It is learning the language learning the that stories, the habits, the assumptions, the fears, the hopes, in order to make a connection. And all of that just seems, it's difficult. It's arduous. It requires openness and curiosity and all of these things. And, uh, but without that, we, we, we retreat into our old paths, you know, whatever. And it makes it, I think difficult. And so I do think that passage has troubled many in the church for a long. What does that mean? What does it mean to become like? Uh, and I don't know, how would you answer that question? I would say in our authenticity, I know that's a buzzword, so I hesitate to use it, but I think in the healthiest version of our authentic selves, as we understand how our story is engrafted into the redemptive narrative of not just humankind, but of the created universe. In that authenticity, if we live out of that place, um, we actually don't have to be a chameleon. Like, to share the gospel with a hockey player, I don't need to spend 10,000 hours playing hockey. Um, but if we're actually our most authentic selves and we understand that in our human experience, no matter what your family of origin or where you were raised or what job you work, there are human experiences under the sun using Ecclesiastes language that are going to be to some degree common. Like the human heart, it changes cultural context and has access to different technologies, but the human heart's the human heart. And so if we're living out of the authentic space of understanding our story and grafted into the redemptive story, um, I think we can connect with way more people than we give ourselves credit because they're having human experiences that are not dissimilar from our own, even if they're in a different economic class, even if they're in a different language, even if they're in a different part of the world. Like they have family members dying. They have family members being born. There are times of plenty. There are times of scarcity. There are times of belly laughter. In, in all of this, I think there's connection. But um, if we're putting all our energy into like politicized or man-made solutions or putting all our energy into ignoring that which is other so that we don't ever have a deep belly laugh with them, Mm-hmm. We're just shooting ourselves in the foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in order to do that, there has to be some sort of belief or faith that there is a commonality, that we can share a belly laugh, that we do have common hopes, fears, uh, even if their belief system is quite a bit different, because we're, that's kind of what it means to be an image bearer. Beauty still seems like beauty to us. Truth, you know, we, we have an appreciation for beauty and truth. and. But in order to find that commonality, there has to be a curiosity, there has to be a vulnerability, an attempt to understand, uh, a belief that this connection is worth it. And in all of that, and you know, if 
you're authentically being transformed by the gospel, your authenticity connected to me in a way I can, that translates. Now that's a pathway for God through the Holy Spirit to begin to transform me. Uh, and if that's the goal, that's how it can happen. But if the goal is to make sure I don't get anything dirty on my clothes from the other people, then you're, you know, you, you have to pick one or the other. Uh, I do think there is a, you know, so there's the withdraw, uh, but there's also the, uh, to be like can be overdone into a sense that I'm no longer distinct. And I've, all of my cultural and spiritual distinctives are disappeared because I'm just like everyone around me. And then why would anybody care? You know, if I'm just like everyone around me, then, then what do I have to offer? So there's some middle ground there of being like, but also being distinctive, you know, right. Of being salty still, but somehow being out in the world and remaining salty. I just think that's, that's not something that we've really made a priority or we often seem to lose that as the thread of what we ought to be doing. You think I'm right about that or what would you say? Yeah, I do think that's the chameleon temptation of to be effective in sharing this message. I have to be so like the people or the moment around me. Otherwise, they won't even begin to hear it. But I think if we think about our own experiences, like when someone's truly authentically living out of a healthy place of their story, um, even if they're wildly different than you, it's really attractive. You know, you can say, wow, I'm nothing like that person, but that person is a gift. And I do think the chameleon temptation does lead you eventually to a place of, if everyone's saying they're different, then everyone holds in common that they're all saying they're different. And then it's a weird common ground of everyone claiming to be this unique individual. And then that actually becomes the common thing itself, ironically. So um, there's always going to be that temptation. The church has always been faced with that temptation. The irony is we're always lagging behind the foremost creative trends that come out of the you know, cultural centers of our society. Um, and yet it still feels like we're trying to sprint to keep up for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe we just need to stop trying to sprint to keep up and just like walk at the pace. Jesus. Has yeah. For I mean, us. That, that's the, you know, to bring our authenticity to the world uh, means having some sense of what that is, some sense of who we are called to be so that we're not, pulled into the bubble to try to maintain some uh, identity that's separate from and not connected to, which is in a sense a false identity because our true identity is connected. And then the other, other side is, as you called it, the chameleon temptation, you know, neither side works. So the, the bubble doesn't actually protect and the chameleon, you're not even a good chameleon. As you said, you're, you know, we lag behind since that's not really our world. And so we're sort of, we disconnect ourselves from both worlds and we can speak to neither. And I feel like that's where a lot of believers feel like they are. And so connected to one another, connected to Christ, we can be our true authentic self and we can bring that to the people around us. That seems to be the call. And I think it's, 
it's a, I think there's a lot of cultural pull away from that in the church, within the church, a lot of centripetal force that takes us away from that, that, that view. Yeah. I mean, either way, you're trusting in a cultural identity. You're at, you're even, you're either trusting in a subcultural identity that promises to protect you or the majority culture identity that promises you fulfillment. And either way, you're aligning in the same in Jesus's day, whether you were a zealot or an Essene or a Pharisee or a Sadducee, you were aligning with a majority or a minority position in a way that blinded you from seeing Jesus of Nazareth being different than all these cultural identities. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Let's leave it there. That's a good place. It's a good place to stop. Uh, you know, they're still mowing the lawn. So, uh, <laughs> the background, I think somebody is. Anyway, uh, well, thanks. Uh, thanks a great deal. Um, thanks, Chris. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen Arrival, you should see it uh, and uh, enjoy it. You can skip, skip, shiny, happy people. You get the idea. I don't think you really need to watch it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll leave it there. Uh, and, uh, you know, enjoy the next installment from the embassy. And uh, until then, uh, we'll see you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. Do you enjoy On Culture? You can support us and the content produced by subscribing to our newsletter, The Embassy, by visiting theembassy.substack.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts.